Well, since the 1970s, Victoria Yannicka's family have had a keen interest in digging up and telling the story of the man considered the country's first wildlife ranger, Richard Henry. Appointed in 1894 as caretaker of Resolution Island in Fiordland's Dusky Sound, so that's way southwest of the South Island, Henry spent 14 years, much of it by himself, in the remote landscape where he fiercely defended Kākāpō and Kiwi against a tide of mustelids sweeping the mainland. Victoria's family first went to Dusky Sound in 1974, and her parents, John and Susan Hill, Suzanne Hill, used Richard Henry's notes and letters to navigate their way through the sounds. Following that, the Hills published their first book about the man, Richard Henry of Resolution Island. This was in 1987. Suzanne passed away in 2014 uh, when Victoria and her dad, John, decided to publish all of Richard Henry's letters, culminating in the self-published Letters of a Naturalist, the field accounts of Richard Henry of Resolution Island. It weighs about three kilograms... It's full of images, beautiful pictures, and uh, the correspondence itself. The first part includes Richard's letters, usually to his employer, friends or scientists, among others. The latter parts of the book focus on Henry's notes, observations and speculations about wildlife in New Zealand, particularly on our flightless birds. Victoria is also a viola player in the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. I should have... Got you to bring the instrument in. <laughs> no. She's in the Wellington studio. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you, Catherine. Good what morning. An amazing story. This it, connection that your parents forged. How did it begin? Well, as you said, it did begin um, way back in 1974 on the sailing expedition that we undertook. Uh, my father had built a lovely wooden sailing boat and. We got it uh, lifted over by helicopter, the legendary Bill Black, um, from the Hall Arm of Doubtful Sound into the Vancouver Arm of Brakesy Sound and then trailed around into Dusky. And um, I'm not quite sure why, but uh, Mum and Dad had taken Richard Henry's notes to the Lands and Survey Department, some of his reports with them, so we sort of followed all the places, went to Pigeon Island where he'd built his cottage and went around all the places of the sound where he had moved birds and and that really, um, they developed a really strong ad- admiration for what he'd tried to achieve there. So um, was it in planning the sailing trip in a very remote part, as we said, of the yes, far west of the South that's Island? that's right. Was it that that got them looking at... I think so. At, you know, yes. at, at relevant content yes. and then they got hooked. Yes, yeah. That's right. And, and you know, by being there in Dusky and experiencing the sandflies, the rain, you know, the steep terrain, the storms, all the conditions that happen there, um, yes, the admiration grew. And then um, they researched for quite a few years and published biography about him. And um, at the time already uh, my mother and father thought it would be really awesome to have all his natural history writings and all his letters um, collected from the archives and put into one place together so that they're more accessible for people to read. Copies thereof or are the originals still in the Um, archives? A lot of the originals are are there, yes, um, and transcriptions of them had been done already quite early on, so there there were transcriptions Done so they had original documents to care for? Yes. Wow. So a lot of the letters are in the um, New Zealand archives in Dunedin, and some are here in Wellington and in the Alexander Turnbull 
and um, the Hocken Library has a lot as well. Yeah. So how comprehensive is this of his writing? Um, it's a very large portion of it. So there was a little bit of um, repetition because obviously sometimes he was writing to different people but with almost the same content. So there is sometimes a little bit of overlap. But um, Dad went through everything and and edited out everything that was, you know, very repetitious. So it is a very comprehensive um, representation. Just yeah. before we came on air, I said I love correspondent books about correspondence because mm. we just don't write this way anymore. No, we don't. And I mean he was a meticulous observer of all the habits and behaviours of the birds, especially Kakapo Kiwi, but a lot of all the other types of birds that were in Fiordland. Um, and he writes quite in a, a very simple but eloquent way, but very delightfully and, and with humour about their behaviour. And not only the birds, uh, he, he was very fond of all the fish and um, wrote a lot about the marine life as well. So that's also another great picture of what was going on there so, at that time. So give us a flavour of the correspondence. Again, it's different because now we either correspond with very sort of short communications yes. with each other yeah. or we write great big kind of you mm. know emotional tomes or something yes. but but this was really the only communication you had this wasn't supplementing no. phone calls texts coffee catch-ups no that's right and so it's very unique <laughs> in, it is in, in, unique. in style yeah um, and because and, it's so detailed uh, as well and yeah. so what would it be dear so-and-so like give us a couple of examples of somebody might write to and you know i've just had a nice lunch of whatever but then he'd be into this incredible observational did he talk about his emotions and things? Um, only very occasionally talked about his emotions. So most of it was very much about his work, his day-to-day -day work and the struggles with translocating the birds and catching them and all the sort of day-to-day -day issues he might have had with his boat or or rowing the birds over to resolution to let them go. And, yeah, so it's it's there's not a, a lot of... Um, what I guess we would call um, soul-searching emotional no. content, yeah. And and descriptions also just for description's sake. Was it no, quite, it's no. workmanlike. It is. It is. Um, it, there's a real love there of the birds. Yes. You can see that there's a real love. So yeah. Let's hear his story and what an odd bird he was because he was 27 before he came to New Zealand. Mm -hmm. what, what was the what was the backstory and and how did he land with so much knowledge? Um, well, he was. Born in Ireland, so his his family was was well to do. His father was an engineer, and they immigrated to Australia then in the early eighteen fifties when the potato famine was on in in, in Ireland. Um, but unfortunately, um, due to various circumstances, ended up losing the family fortune on a speculative gold field adventure, and eventually settled in rural Victoria. So and went into market gardening and sawmilling, and Richard was obviously even as a young lad loved being outdoors, um, out in nature, observing what was going on. He spent quite a lot of time um, with the local Aboriginal Australian clans of that area. So he he was a great admirer of their throwing, hunting, um, climbing skills, eeling, um, fishing. And so I, I think he just from a very early age picked up that love of being in the outdoors and observing what was going on. Yeah. 
So he came to New Zealand, I think in the 1860s, worked all 1870s, over the place. 1870s. Yeah. And worked so all over the place, yeah. He worked all over the place from New Plymouth down to um, Kingston. I think he was even involved in building the Kingston steamer at Kingston. Um, he had a lot of skill as uh, with carpentry and, and ship uh, or boat building. Um, and he did all sorts of activities from being a shepherd to rabbiting boatman, guide, all sorts of things before he finally more or less settled um, in the Taiano area. So what mm. then is the leap to Resolution Island and, um, and the work he did there? Well, he was um, working for the Melland family who had Tiana Down Station on the shores of Lake Taianao and doing various other work for other people. And one of the things he did to supplement his income was collecting bird skins, so which was the thing that people did in those days to send to museums, um, scientists, all that kind of thing. And so he was hunting a lot for birds on the western shore of Lake Tiana, which is the sort of the um, entry to Fiordland, so to speak. And um, through that activity, um, his observations of the birds and their behaviour and everything, he, he, he really started to change from being... He, he really grew to love the birds and wanted to protect them. So I think that was the shift to... That happened, that from happened. exploiting to, yeah. to, to protecting. Yeah. And he was ahead of his time, it seems, on mm. this front. We're talking about him as a significant, you know, first early European uh, conservationist yes. anyway. Yeah. And he seemed to be on to the dangers the mustelids posed. Very much. much. So he was, um, I mean, they were starting to be released around 1879, you know, 1881 a lot, 1882. And it became obvious to him very quickly, along with other people, that the birds were rapidly disappearing. I'll just uh, read you a tiny little thing that he wrote. Um, in 1884, eastward of Teano Lake was just swarming with weka. Now there are none. On the west, from the mouth of Waiao, for 25 miles of beach, there are neither signs nor sounds of kākāpō weka nor kiwi, where they used to be numerous, but there are plenty of ferret tracks on the beach. Up the creeks in the bush, grey teal and blue tuck duck were plentiful, but now they're all gone, and the black teal are rapidly going also, and in all probability will soon be simply a memory of the past. So that was already, you know, only one or two years after the release. and stoats and Ferret, so stoats, weasels. I mean, uh, the stoat, I think, was is considered the number one killer. <laughs> um, but, yeah, all of them... Speaking of ahead of his time, he began translocations, and we're yes. still doing this now. We're right? still doing we're, we're, that. We're doing this yeah. in, in, in completely protected environments, and then hopefully relocating to environments that have become safe enough. Mm. It's a, a big project happening it, here now. Massive. He yeah. was doing it in the eighteen eighties. Well, that was um, he started. He's, he when he went to Dusky in eighteen ninety four. Um, it took him about a year to sort of get settled. Um, they, he built his cottage on Pigeon Island, and then in, in eighteen ninety five actually started translocating the birds and that was quite a major thing because the the bush is incredibly dense he had to have a trained dog obviously um, with a muzzle on and a bell and hunted for the birds uh, in all the places that he thought you know they would be and um, he was nearly 50 when he went to 
Dusty. Was this so an official job, by the way? He this was, was now an, official an official job. Ranger. This, yeah. yeah, he was, well, they called it curator, um, it, but basically he was a wildlife ranger. Yeah. Um, because he also later, you know, he, he was patrolling the sound, um, trying to deal with poachers and, and fishermen who were up to naughty activities and all that, and, um, you know, keeping an eye on all the places where he'd put birds out and doing all those kind of things that rangers do, yeah. And aside, on his on his personal life and mm. his character, um, he never married? Because he goes and lives by himself over here for He did. He was years. married he, he in Australia. Married, right? He had been married in Australia to a, a, a girl also of Irish uh, family descent. And we don't quite know what happened, um, whether the marriage just fell apart and he came to New Zealand because he mm. was not feeling good. Um, we found a record that she had died um, in Melbourne of, um, I think, well, was it typhoid or some, mm. something? Um, but that was after he'd right. come to New Zealand. So, he, so we're presuming that the marriage just fell apart. And he never had a family here. And then no. he goes to resolution to this job and stays for yes. some 14 years. There was a mention perhaps of somebody in New Zealand that he might have hoped would become um, mm. a partner. But, there, you know, nobody, mm. yeah. Um, well, it's a, it takes a special type. There are a few it of them does. up and down the coast, I should yeah. say, but it takes a special type to live in such isolation, yes. whether alone or, or as a couple. Yeah. And so what was he doing there? And just pick up on the translocations again. What was he doing that would be seen again as really leading conservation work? Because presumably at this stage, at the beginning anyway, resolution hadn't been impacted by the introduction of the mustards. No, but he knew they were moving south mm. and it, with a they very... They swim too, the little and suckers. They, yes, yeah. the little suckers can swim. <laughs> and that was obviously what was so devastating later on when he'd mm. moved, I think, by that point in 1900 when, when a stoat um, was seen. Well, they called it a weasel at the time, but they're pretty sure it was a stoat. Um, he'd translocated about 600 birds or so by that point... You know, rowing them across in his rowboat to all the. <laughs> Did he put them in a little cage? Presumably, yes. He had a little double cage um, yeah. outfit that he'd made himself, um, and that was quite tricky too because sometimes after he'd caught the birds on various other places around the sound, he had to keep them a little while at his cottage until he took them over. So, and he not only put them on resolution, the majority were there, but um, some were also on, on other islands, smaller islands in, in, in Tamatea Dusky. And, um, yeah, it was quite difficult because, you know, occasionally they, they didn't make it. Um, and, yeah, I think that really is the pioneering thing that he did and also the record that he left for our Kākāpō recovery teams today or, you know, from the 70s when Don Merton and people were um, doing their amazing work. You can't just take yeah. the bit across and plonk it down, you know? You... Um, I think potentially that's pretty much what, what, he he, what he did because it was very difficult. I mean, there's a, not a lot of shoreline there where you can land, um, so some places he was literally had to sort of throw the birds out onto the seaweed and rocks that were, um, you know, on the shore and hope that they would make it. Yeah. 
He had, um, before going as Resolution Island curator, he'd already spent a decade, as we said, around Theano in, in Manapuri, and mm. I think it was a meeting, a sort of a fortunate meeting where someone recognised his ability as a field observer that sort of led to all this. This is how he was introduced to key people who were scientists, say, like um, mm. uh, at, at Otago Uni. Well, yes, he was corresponding. I think, I mean, I think word just got around, and he had a very... Um, ardent supporter in his employer, um, Edward Malland, who was a sort of quite an influential person in Dunedin at the time. And, and he also began writing natural history um, little articles in the Otago Witness in the paper. So sort of word got around that he was, um, you know, very clued up on all these things. And, um, yes, and he started corresponding with the scientists and, you know, people even, you know, Sir James Hector, people up in um, the National Museum at the time, Augustus Hamilton, lots of people, biologists, scientists. And they didn't always believe him because he was, he recognised that the um, kakapo didn't breed every year and was really the first person to work out that it was the food conditions that brought on the breeding, and people didn't believe him at that time. What else yeah. from his time there was groundbreaking? Um, I think just generally the fact that he left so much detailed information, which about behaviour about behaviour of the birds, and and people they're still referring to his notes today, which is quite amazing, really. What happened? Um, there's not too many plot points. Well, there's a good few actually. We're about to get to another one. Um, what happened when that first mustard had turned up? He's described being heartbroken. He went yes. hunting for it. Yes. Well, there was a sighting um, by excursionists in, I think, in May 1900, and they it was reported to him that um, a weasel had been seen on resolution on the beach. He didn't really believe it. Um, but then in 19, uh, later in the year, in August, he saw one himself and spent, I think, three months trying to catch the damn thing and didn't catch it. Yeah. But at least it couldn't breed if it was just one. What, yeah. um, what are the other standouts before he comes back to um, civilization? What are, what are the other standouts? I mean, generally, was he successful? Well, ultimately, obviously, no, he wasn't. I mean... The translocation of 700 birds and then that devastating realisation that the stoats had arrived, they could swim, they could swim over from the mainland and he got very disheartened after that, I think. Um, he did um, move more birds but not nearly as many mm. as he because he knew there was nothing... He could do, and there were and, and there was nobody to help him. You mm. know, there there were no resources there were no put predator, into it. Predator-proof fences no, in those days. and I mean that Resolution Island is enormous. Mm. I mean, you can't, as one person, possibly trap or control or do anything really there by yourself. From yeah. his letters mm. at that time, because we're going to have him move to Auckland in a moment. Did you sense a happy person, a person? In his place, undoubtedly it's lonely. Some people, remember it was actually Dame Jane Goodall making it very clear that being alone and being lonely are different Mm. things. Yes. Um, But, you know, did did you get the sense of a person who was on a desperate kind of mission or a person actually who was content in his life? Yes, I I get the sense that 
he was very much the right type of personality to be doing that job. Nevertheless, he did um, he did get lonely, and I mean he didn't he had an assistant very occasionally. Probably, I think maybe ten percent of the time of the fourteen years that he was there, and he did wish that he could have had a a partner there, but. Um, it doesn't. He doesn't come across to me as 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 a sad person. No, no. no. He goes to Auckland and uh, actually survives a, a bout of depression. Yes, where he in, attempts to take his own life. Yes, um, rather dramatically. Yes. And um, what was happening at that time? Obviously, the dream had, you know, crumpled somewhat with mm. the realization the sanctuary couldn't be a sanctuary in the way he'd hoped. What else was happening? In Auckland, that led to that desperation. Um, well, the the Auckland episode was um, happened just after resolution was declared a reserve, and the government was meant to be appointing a curator. And he'd been battling politics. He really wanted to the, get this. He really wanted the yep. job. I mean, he I don't. He wasn't a person that wrote letters to to government and said, "Give me the job." But he it was known in those circles that he would be the man for the job. And but there was a lot of procrastination from the bureaucratic side. And I think then he got quite depressed that it wasn't going to work out. He really wanted to do it, so he took off to Auckland. And, um, yes, shot himself in the head. Luckily, it didn't work. <laughs> I think the second go there was a... Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was, so I, they did take a bullet out. I'm not quite sure. So where he was trying to shoot yeah. himself, but he did survive it. And um, luckily, because then he did get the job. Yeah. And off he went to resolution. What Dusky. happened in that second phase of any significance when he went back? Well, oh, this, oh, this was the so this was the the very understood. first time. Understood. Yeah. So understood. he 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 used to come out. Um, so he was there for fourteen years. He used to occasionally come out for a little bit of a holiday, a little bit of a mm. holiday break in Dunedin, and stay with the Mellon family um, and experience a little bit of family life, um, which he loved. Um, but essentially, he was there for fourteen years. Yeah. Yeah, and then afterwards, I mean, he was getting on. Um, you know, when it was realised that the Mustelids had moved into the area, and there was there were a lot of things that he just couldn't really control anymore. Um, they were worried for his safety, so they moved him off to uh, Carpeti Island. Yeah. Here's Henry to Melland in 1900. Um, the steamer was here. Yet. Dear sir, everything seems to be yes. good. Yes, yes, very polite. Yeah. The steamer was here yesterday, and the captain kindly anchored for some hours. But I could not write a word to anybody. I mm. had stores to look after, bills to pay, and a lot of visitors to talk to, so that I had several things to do and think of one at a time. And I am a poor hand at that. Uh, did, did well, you... the steamer only came every every yeah. three months yes. or so. Supplies, yes. and then obviously that was. And sometimes it, it stayed, uh, sometimes it would stay overnight and he got to go on board and have dinner with all the crew and any visitors. So that was a real highlight for him. But sometimes it was only there very, very briefly. So he had to receive his mail, hurriedly write things, or sometimes he prepared things as well and give them to the steamer to go off and be posted. Um, yeah, so it was always, and, and sometimes he missed the steamer entirely because he was out 
taking birds That's not good and then he wouldn't see it for a very so he never knew exactly when it was going to very, turn up and this is yeah. the other thing how resourceful he is comes through weather at Pigeon Island for November 1904 and here we are day shade temperature rain for the previous 24 yes. hours wind direction and so forth that is a treasure trope interspersed with the letters in some of these other documents is beautiful photography. Who's done the photography? Um, well, the photo- yes, we were really very blessed with the um, images for the book. I, I sort of put out a call to a lot of different people. So um, Jake, Osborne, Jake Osborne, who's a um, <laughs> ranger, kākāpō yes. ranger, and many other excellent New Zealand bird photographers and, you know, asked if they would be interested in being uh, contributing to the project and everybody was well, amazing. From yeah, here yeah. With some beautiful images of the flowers yeah. of the place. So it's been a real collaborative effort. Yeah, here is oh good old Andrus Andrus Apps. Apps. Yes. Yeah. So so and they cooperated with it. And this is the other part of the story. Mm. You wanted to get these published. Mm-hmm. You couldn't get a publisher to come to the party. not back then. My mother. What, there was nobody that. In the eighties was or nineties was interested, but you so set it was up, put did you away. Set up your own essentially to do um, this in the end. Yes, well, yes, yes, exactly. So we really, I mean, it's a very, it's a large book. It's a, uh, I guess you could call it a niche um, subject, and um, it was not a commercial viability for a normal publishing house. So my father um, and took it on to you know, put up the funds to get the book published. And we were incredibly lucky because Robbie Burton from mm-hmm. Potton and Burton was really keen to see it come t- to fruition as well. And he helped enormously by arranging the actual printing of the book for us. Okay, yeah. that, makes, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And so yeah. Putangi Publications was born and, yes. it, and it's happened. And, and what's the what's the feeling about this now? Uh, uh, the, Richard Henry's kind of been like a, a, a beloved unknown uncle through your life. Yes, that's right. right. <laughs> and, and your mother's dedication to it and, and now um, being able to complete it. And there must be a moment of reflection or are you just looking for any typos still? <laughs> no, yeah, well, they're always there. Yeah. <laughs> I think and Robbie said that at one stage too. Don't get too depressed about that. <laughs> there are always a few there. Yeah. Uh, no matter how many times you prove free, the pedants happy. It gives them something to That's do. That's right. But I'm 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 just really glad that we actually did it. It was five years of work, um, Dad and me, and um, a very lovely lady who helped um, with all the layout of the book. And um, I'm just glad that we that we did get it done. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, that is Victoria Unica. And Suzanne Hill, John Hill, and Victoria are the names on this uh, quite remarkable book, actually. Letters of a Naturalist, the field accounts of Richard Henry of Resolution Island.